The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. And hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the uh, third hour of today's show, or as I like to call it, the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guests this hour are uh, co-authors. Um, we have... Um, Mel Emser Herbert, who is a sociology professor and a U.S. Army veteran, and um, Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram, who is serving openly as a transgender woman in the U.S. Space Force. The book is called With Honor and Integrity, Transgender Troops in Their Own Words, and both of them join me by phone. Bree, Mel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for Thank having Thank you so us. much for having us. Um, let, me, let me ask this of, of Mel first, because um, things have been up and down with regard to Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and I'm not sure everybody even knows what that is. And Mel, you wrote the book on it. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm going to charge you with explaining uh, exactly what that policy is and, and very quickly... Um, how it's impacted people in the military as it's gone up and down. Wow. Okay. Well, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was federal law that codified essentially the prohibition on gays, lesbians, and bisexuals from serving openly in the U.S. military. We actually just observed the 10th anniversary of its repeal. So that is no longer law. And gays, lesbians, and bisexuals are welcome to serve openly in the military. Um, one of the things that I learned in doing the more recent work was that many, many people didn't understand that Don't Ask, Don't Tell did not address the service of transgender persons at all. So when that was in effect, that was not the law used to bar the service of transgender people. And when it was repealed, it didn't help. So in terms of Don't Ask, Don't Tell... Um, that's really, it's relevant, but it's an entirely different creature and is no longer um, something that we have to abide by. Bree, um, 
Mel just used the word um, prevented people from serving openly. And you serve openly. And, and I guess I'm just, um, you know, maybe naive, but, but certainly confused. How could you not serve openly in an organization where people fraternize so closely? How could, how could, so you, not, can, how could you not be out? Well, there's, there's a long history, you know, dating back with lesbians, gays, bisexual, and transgender folks serving within the military. Uh, there are recorded examples back certainly to the Civil War and, and going back even further, and many more that never were recorded. Now, some of them may have been out to a certain degree with a small number of people, uh, their, their unit perhaps. And you can talk to a lot of people that have served in the military who said, we knew who was a lesbian or who was gay in, in the service, but we just didn't act on it because they were there, they were part of the team, and that's what mattered was that they were getting the mission done. For transgender people, it's a little different when to be open and who you are, there's often physical changes that go with that. So most trans people had to serve completely in the closet uh, about who they were, both in, in word and in deed. So until 2016, if you were revealed to be trans, you know, you were at risk of being kicked out um, for any number of reasons. And even then, since then, we've had this back and forth of policy where in 2017, you had uh, the president tweet that trans people were a burden on the military and had to go back, you know, to serving in silence for the most part. No one knew could come out. No one knew could get in. Um, and that's a really difficult situation to be in. Was that, was that Bree talking? Or was that me? Yeah. Yes, that was, that was Bree. That was Bree. Okay, because I, 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 don't, I don't have your voices yet in my head. So, um, and, and it's always tricky doing a phone interview with multiple people, but, uh, but we'll, we'll be fine. Um, for a lot of people um, listening, uh, about all they know about transgenders is that there's a controversy about where they use the restroom. <laughs> and I know that sounds silly to you who deal with this all the time, but it makes me wonder what relationships are like inside the military with fellow soldiers. Are they so accepting... Oh, yeah, this is Bree. I'll, I'll lead off with an, an answer about that one, and, and Mel can fill in the gaps where, where I may miss. Excellent. But in the vast majority of circumstances, people are accepting. You know, the military is an interesting dynamic because while we may be a tradition-based institution with, with rules and regulations that date back centuries, we're also a young person's organization. And young people today I've been brought up in a world where being trans is a part of our reality, and that's a, a very different situation. But most people who come out in the military are respected and welcomed with open arms because they contribute. They help the team accomplish the mission they're assigned. And that's what's most important in the military is your competency, the ability for your 
fellow squad mates or uh, other teammates uh, to accept you is based on them trusting you to get the job done that you've been assigned. And trans people do that every day. Mel? Mel, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I would just add, um, I, you know, what you're referring to is all of the controversies that we saw at various places around the U.S. with regard to restroom access. And I don't really want to go too far down that except to say that it's very, very different to have a locally-led effort, um, typically by people who are really at the fringes or extreme and who, who are, quite honestly, really ignorant as to the issues, one of the things with regard to the military that I said during the years and years that I was working, well, serving under and working with Don't Ask, Don't Tell, is that of all, you know, a lot people often said, oh, this is going to be really disruptive, this isn't going to work. And I think Brie really alluded to this, that the military is, I feel, such a unique organization, both in terms of its hierarchy and what I will loosely characterize as camaraderie, that when you're counting on people to do their job in a way that is quite literally potentially life-saving, do you really care about their gender identity, their sexual orientation, and so on? I actually have always felt that um, shifts in these policies were likely to be much more smoothly undertaken in the military because of its very design. So... Um, I think with regard to um, that particular issue, Mel, um, I'm glad it's, it's you largely moved. I'm glad you used the the phrase disruptive to the military, to the organization, and and uh, to command structure and so on, because that same argument was used with regard to blacks in the military, women serving equally in the military, and I just wonder if if those evolutions have maybe cleared the path a little bit for LGBTQ yeah, I, people I serving. Think that, yeah, as you suggest, I mean, going back to the early to mid-20th century, we saw these issues with regard to African Americans and then later with women and so on. And I do like to think that each time we overcome a particular hurdle, we learn, because in those instances, one of the arguments that was made was things like, oh, no one's going to take orders from fill in the group, right? Nobody's going to listen or want to serve alongside fill in the group. And each time there has been social change in that regard, it's been really a blip on the, the radar screen. People have done quite well. They've said, well, okay, and they've seen that people perform competently and that that's what really matters. So, yeah, I do think that although the very groups are quite different, the arguments have been very similar, and the outcome once people started serving alongside people who were different from themselves was largely the same, and that is it. things just continued to work. Well, I just... Uh had the feeling that the military, because of its uh, command structure and, and the way it's organized, the sort of the, the top-down structure of it, has always been kind of a closed fraternity. And then all of a sudden, you know, as, as you point out, in the early part of the 20th century and through the 20th century, it's gone through these, these big cultural changes um, with race and, and gender and 
and one could argue now gender identity, um, that maybe because it's such a close-knit fraternity, once you pass a certain um, oh, uh, indoctrination, that people really do judge each other based on competency. We certainly like to believe that that is the case in the majority of circumstances, that leadership matters, command culture matters, and that when it comes down that we are going to treat people with dignity and respect at a bare minimum, that's important. And if the word comes down from the top that everyone is valued for who they are and what they bring to the team, that absolutely helps make sure that we are all focused on accomplishing the mission. Now, it doesn't mean that there are pockets of reactionary or bigoted behavior where there's discriminatory actions taken against certain service members. Uh, but it does evolve, and it does get better over time, and those things go down. Yet, even now, you know, 70, 80 years after we have African Americans serving in an integrated way in the military. You have racial justice reports coming out of the services saying there are disparities. So we can still do better for everyone. Every minority group serving in the military deserves that opportunity to excel. Um, and our culture does help create that, but we can and must continue to do better and stress that everyone is valued for what they contribute. Mel, do you want to add something? Um, yeah, I think Bree summarized it really well. I, I don't know that I have anything to add to that point. Was there, um, was there an adjustment period, Bree, for you? No, there really wasn't much of, of an adjustment period. Um, we can look back to what we talked about earlier with don't ask, don't tell, and you know when that was repealed in law and all of a sudden, you know one day people couldn't be open and the next they could and nothing really changed. Um, it was mostly the same for transgender service members. In fact, the day I came out was the day the Secretary of Defense in 2016 announced that transgender people could serve openly. And so to give an example of a positive impact on unit cohesion, when he finished speaking, I had a note ready to go to all of my colleagues and a post ready to go out uh, basically to the world on Facebook. And even though I knew it was okay, I was still nervous when he finished speaking and I, I hesitated. Uh, but then I hit, I hit send, uh, I hit post, and you know, started wondering what's the reaction going to be. So I took all my nervous energy down to the gym in the basement of the Pentagon, and I burned out the motor on an elliptical machine with, with everything I had going, <laughs> going nowhere faster than I ever had in my life, um, you know, wondering what's it going to be like when I get back to my desk. But one by one, my colleagues in my office walked over to me, shook my hand, and said, it's an honor to serve with you. And I was absolutely floored because it is my honor to serve with them and serve on behalf of this nation to be able to accomplish the amazing things that we're doing. And so many people have had similar experiences Bree, Mel, in coming out and being welcomed. I, I, I hate to interrupt, but I have to take a short break here. Can you stand by for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Absolutely. Of course. That would be great. My guests are Bree Fram and... Uh, 
Mel Amzer Herbert. We'll be back with more right after this. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. 
Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back, everybody, as we continue uh, with our conversation with the authors of a new book uh, called With Honor and Integrity, Transgender Troops in Their Own Words, with uh, editors Mel Emser Herbert and Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram. Uh, Bree, Mel, welcome back, and uh, thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. No worries. Um just before the uh, uh, break, we were talking a little bit. Um, I think uh, Bree was talking about how um, easy it, it, not easy, but but how manageable it was coming out. And and what about your experience, Mel? Did you go through um, a, a a tough indoctrination or? Uh, acceptance period what what was your experience like well I actually enlisted in the military in 1978 and that was prior to the policy we now know as don't ask don't tell so when I was initially on active duty I served under a different regulation that was focused on prohibiting gays lesbians and bisexuals but was not yet we didn't yet have don't ask don't tell and it was really very different over the time as I was on active duty, reserve duty, and different policies and laws were in place. But what I was thinking about as Bree was speaking was this. When someone understands themselves to be gay, lesbian, or bisexual, and they then come out, whether that's in the military or a civilian sector or what have you, um, there isn't a lot of else that has to go on in terms of their interacting with the military or even with their civilian organization. They're simply sharing something about, I shouldn't say simply, but they're sharing something about themselves. And then life goes on. But although, as Bree notes, for many, many people, this has been a fairly smooth process, I do think it's important to note that when someone identifies as transgender and wishes to engage in social, legal, medical transitions, that involves an entirely different interaction with the bureaucracy of which one is a part. So while absolutely, and I think Bree was really speaking to what is generally described as social transition, you know, how were their colleagues engaging, and that was a positive experience, people have reported very different things and things about which I know Bree could comment in much greater detail, but getting medical care in a timely fashion, getting documents approved for a, um, changing one's gender marker and such. So while I do agree and all evidence suggests that there's been an overwhelmingly positive reception, um, it is a very different engagement with, if we can just say kind of plainly, your employer than is generally the case for people who are coming out as gay, lesbian, or bisexual. Once again, the book is called With Honor and Integrity, Transgender Troops in Their Own Words. And uh, I, I misspoke earlier when I, when I called the two of you co-authors. Um, I, I see in a press release I have you referred to as editors. And I um, wanted to ask you about that. How did you put this, this book together? Was it, did you interview transgender people serving in the military and from 
all branches? Great question. Great question. Um, this was uh, an area that I was doing research on um, back in, well, really starting 2014, but in 2017. And I had in- interviewed Bree um, for uh, an article that I was writing, looking at the experiences of transgender people in the military, specifically looking at that time when suddenly people were told they were welcome, and then 13 months later they were told they were not. And it was from that experience that I decided I wanted to see about putting a book together. And I reached out to Bree, um, who just seemed to be the perfect person to go on this journey with me. And what we did is put out a call for people to contribute their own essays. So ultimately, the book has 26 essays, one of which is written by Bree, um, about people's experience. So that's like the subtitle, In Their Own Words. So a couple, I, I think maybe two of the pieces were actually interviews that we then crafted into prose. But the other pieces were all written by people who are trans, who served or are serving in the military. So the heart of the book is those personal essays, those stories about their experiences. And we also provide the history of of what's happened in terms of Don't Ask, Don't Tell that we've talked about, and more specifically, the 10 years in between Don't Ask, Don't Tell and now, and how policies change and who the organizations and players were in, in making that happen, um, and all the, the you know roller coaster moments that transgender people have gone through. But as Mel said, the heart of the book is are those essays, the fact that some are poignant, some are funny, some are inspiring, and some are heartbreaking about the things that our transgender service members have been through. And what I think it really shows is their humanity. And the fact that there's no one way to be trans. There's no one way to be trans in the military. Uh, each story is unique. Uh, in, individually, they're fascinating. Collectively, they're important. Uh, aside from just individuals being different from one person to the next, how are these these essays different from essay to essay? Do they cover different time periods, different branches of the military, uh, different experiences, uh, maybe regionally, depending on where a certain base is? Um, what what kinds of things do we learn from from these essays and experiences? Well, the first chapter of essays is it composed of, of pieces by people who are veterans who realized when they were serving that they were trans, but because of the time during which they were serving, they couldn't possibly be open about it. So we lead with a look back to what things were like for people who were serving while keeping that secret inside themselves and not living their authentic lives. The next three chapters are are clustered by branch. Um, And it was actually just so marvelous from my perspective We did not, and I want to make this as an important point, we did not review essays and reject pieces. My goal was to include the the work of anyone who was willing to share their story. And what ended up happening is we have all branches represented. We have officer and enlisted personnel. We have people of color and white people. We have people who serve across the country, some of whom are now serving elsewhere around the globe and with a wide range of military occupational specialties. So without a design that said, we're taking you, we're not taking you, we ended up with an incredible mix of experiences, both on those dimensions, but also, as Bree alluded earlier, 
to the thing they chose to focus on? Was it the hardship? Was it the joy? Was it a little bit of both? Was it funny? So I think it's quite an amazing collection, particularly, anyway, I think I could end the sentence there, but particularly because we didn't curate submissions to try to have it hit particular markers, but that um, kind of happened organically. You know, the military has such a long history of um, everybody doing the same things the same way, being very uniformed from what they wear to how they walk and talk and, and all of that. How is diversity making the military better and or stronger? So this is, that's a great question and something that is really important for us today. And what a, a great example I like to use, um, and the, the chief of space operations uses this uh, often, is if we think about sports and any team in sports, let's take football for an example. If you put together a team that had nothing but defensive linemen on it, how many games would you win? And it's kind of the same concept for the military, where we need to bring in a diverse set of talent. And not only do we need to bring it in, we need to retain it. Because we are now this modern, technological, highly educated, highly skilled and trained force. This isn't a military where you can give someone a rifle, two weeks of training, and tell them to take a hill. We lead and we will fight in the future with our brain power. So if those brains that might revolutionize the way we fight and win in cyberspace, in space, or on any other battlefield, just happen to be in a transgender body or in any other body that is otherwise capable of serving, we should want them with us because it's their ideas, their skills, and their desire to serve that matters. And then once they're in again, we need to have that culture that values them for who they are and what they bring to the team so that they want to stick around and we can keep building on their talent for a full career. Once the... Um when when someone who is is trans has been part of a team, you know they've been in the military, they've served, and they've gotten accustomed to the protections that the military provides. People who have your back and being sort of in this separate bubble from the rest of society. And I'm thinking about what happened to a lot of black servicemen when they got back after World War II. They'd, you know, been a significant part of the war effort, and then they came back, couldn't find civilian jobs, were, you know, treated shabbily. And I just wonder, are there are there experiences like that happening to trans people um, post-military, or has uh, uh, American culture become a little bit more accepting by and large? And, and does it depend on what part of the country you're in? Well, now, I, do you want to take this one? Yeah, I'll start, but I suspect that you've got some important things to add. Um, I don't think we have the data, basically. I mean, we have not had enough period of open service um, where people have served openly as trans people who have left and then have been followed to see what exactly has happened afterwards. I think that, and I believe you mentioned, you know, region or part of the country. I think that right now, any 
assessment of that kind of experience is really not going to hinge on whether one was in the military or not. It is going to hinge on where they are, who they're working with or for, what are the laws in the particular area that they're living, are there protections, what's the culture where they're living. So I don't think um, on the military experience part in particular, we have enough people to even start to begin to make that kind of an assessment. But um, I would see the bigger issue being um, where are you living and what's happening in that place. Yeah, I would agree with that. And the bringing it back to the relevance of you know African American service members or anyone else who served uh, and then was discriminated against uh, once they returned home is really relevant. And there are trans people that continue to have not only their existence questioned, uh, but their ability to just be in public and access functions like you talked about in the controversy over restroom access or the ability to play sports for transgender kids. So there is a lot out there that is still very challenging for transgender people who often lack uh, protection in law uh, for against discrimination. So where you are, who you are, who you're with, all of that is important, uh, both for trans people in general and trans people who have served and are now veterans. Well, and and I bring that up out of concern for, and, and I, I haven't really heard much discussion about it yet, but what's going to happen to the troops returning from Afghanistan? Um, you know, will they continue to serve in the military? Will some of them muster out? What happens to them when they try to fit back into everyday life it's tough enough for any soldier but any soldier that that faces any kind of bigotry or discrimination it's likely to be even tougher yeah interestingly enough even though our, our footprint has been really small in afghanistan for quite some time uh we had two former trans service members there working as part of the contractor support team uh, at the, the airport in Afghanistan uh, as, as things uh, ended there. So some people who, who are former trans service members continue to serve in similar roles uh, and go on to, to be supportive of, of the U.S. military even as, as veterans. And so, yes, it's a challenge when, when those missions end. What do they do? Uh, but they will find and likely will um, engage in other supportive activities that continue uh, their passions for what they care about in terms of trying to make the world a better place. Are there places in the country that are considered um, more or less trans-friendly? No, oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we could start with, like, well, there's no federal protection, broadly speaking, for on the basis of gender identity, so specifically trans people. Um, I happen to be in Minnesota. Um, Minnesota was the first state in the country to include gender identity in their civil rights legislation. And while I just like to always be careful and say, I'm not saying things are perfect. You know, people everywhere can run into challenges. But um, generally speaking, um, I'd much rather, as transfers, I'd much rather be in Minnesota then, and I won't name another state, but let me just say there yeah, are. Yeah, I don't want to throw a state or a city <laughs> yeah, under exactly. the bus, but there, exactly. you know. But there's this, a huge difference. I mean, but, and even within one state, urban rural can make a big difference. Um, and again, there are always exceptions. I think it's so critical to say that, but there are absolutely regional, state, 
urban, rural, you know, any even within a place that might be great, you may you might have a work setting that's not terribly hospitable. So huge, huge variety. Well, the book is with honor and integrity, transgender troops in their own words. Um, how did the idea for this book come about, and who are you hoping will read it? Well, I, I, maybe I'll take the. First I mean, the part obvious the, the obvious answer is you know you want everybody to read it, but um, is there a, an audience that you especially think need to read it? Let me quickly comment on the first part of the question and then sure. take it to Bree. I, I mentioned before I had done some other work, and I was trying to be a little brief. But I, So I did this very traditional social science research. I interviewed a dozen people, you know, took the, the content of those interviews and tried to analyze it, interpret it, and published a journal article. And I wanted to do more to get information out about the trans experience in the military setting but I really didn't want to do tr more traditional research that would put trans-military people under the, the focus of my gaze or inquiry. I just, I'm senior enough that I didn't feel I had to do traditional research, but I was really committed to getting stories out there. And I had been interviewed for a book 16, 15, 17 years ago that was basically a collection of interviews, some of which were turned into prose, and I remembered that book and thought, well, maybe that's an avenue. And that's where I came up with the idea of collecting people's stories so that they were telling them in their own words, their own voices. But to the question of who we want to read it, I'd like to throw that to Bree. So I think there are, are three big audiences that, that I would hope read this book. Uh, one, and this is kind of the, the easy target, is people who already support us. Maybe these stories will inspire, uh, they'll make you laugh, uh, they'll make you just want to talk about them with, with friends or even think about sitting down and having a beer with one of the people that wrote their story in here. I think that would be great. More importantly, the two groups I would love to reach, one are young folks who can look at these stories and think, yeah, I could do that too. You know, these there are so many different examples of people living authentically, openly, and striving for their full potential in here. So if we can use that to inspire that's amazing. But to me, one of the things I would really like this book to reach is people who disagree with us, people who don't think that trans people should be serving, people who think that you know trans people are a detriment to the military. I would love for them to take a look at these stories and see how people are contributing in different ways and moving towards the success of our military in defending this nation and realize they serve for the same reasons as everyone else. This isn't a selfish ploy to get access to health care or something else. Uh, yes, the benefits the military offers are great, but if you're just looking for health care, there are so many other options out there where you can get that without signing your name on that dotted line that gives you the possibility of paying the ultimate price for your country. So if folks who are on the fence, or even more so, are adamantly opposed to trans people serving read this book, I would be thrilled. Um, and I'd love to have a conversation with them. Am I right in, in what I read that this book is uh, being released today, officially? That's correct. Um, you are absolutely right. Is it, Was it by design to come out right before Veterans Day, or is this the result of the pandemic? Uh, 
<laughs> no. Um, <laughs> the, the, the timing was close enough that our publisher, NYU Press, thought that it would be nice to tie this to Veterans Day. Well, I... I the time, oh, go ahead. The timing is great, though, because though writing was extended, that gave us the chance to look at what the current administration has done and how some of that mean or what some of that means for trans people looking forward and that ability for us to try and get these stories out there when it's still important to develop the case for enshrining the opportunity for service in law you know so that we don't have future administrations with the ability to flip the switch back and forth on our service with just an executive order so getting these stories out there tying it to veterans day and other big events is awesome but Anything we can do to tell these stories, that's really important to us. How did the two of you get together to do this? Was it, Mel, was it because of your reaching out to uh, Bree for the project you were already working on? How did, how did that unfold? Yeah, I had um, put out a call for people who were willing to be interviewed, and Bree responded. And as that work was wrapping up and I was thinking about, um, I, I thought it was important to have someone with, uh, far more recent connection to the military than myself um, be along. And I particularly like the idea of having someone who was serving right now as a trans person participating. You know, as an academic, I just, I, I felt I, I, I wanted to include someone else. And I had been really um, taken by Bree in our interview. And I actually just pulled it up. It was December 6, 2018, that I sent an email and tentatively I was like, hey, you want to do this with me? <laughs> and of course, it all, it all turned out great from my perspective. So, so <laughs> I'll leave it at that. So what's what's next besides what's retirement? <laughs> what's next for us is is continuing to share these stories in whatever way we can, because we believe in their power, um, in the power of human connection uh, to all these different stories, uh, and then again working on, on an advocacy level to try and make sure that our military is diverse, inclusive, and takes advantage of the talent that's out there. And for me as a Space Force op officer, what an opportunity to be part of a new service and help set what a 21st century military organization really looks like. So an amazing opportunity. Now, do you... And if I, if I, as, Tom, as a, if I could quickly add... Go ahead, I just want to tie what Bree said back to her comment about flipping the switch, that the more people are exposed to the stories who hear about what people have chosen to do in their sacrifices, the greater the chance that we don't have this back and forth over open service, not open service. So I, I think that's just an important connection. Well, Bree, I have so many questions about the Space Force, but we'll have to leave that for another time because <laughs> because now you have access to information that the government's been covering up for decades um actually i'm i'm being facetious about that but i do very quickly and we've only got about 30 seconds but i always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more is there a website yes yeah we have uh 
withhonorbook.com is a great yeah. chance to, to check out more about the book. And I'd also encourage people to check out spartapride.org, uh, which is an organization I'm president of that advocates and educates on behalf of transgender service members. But you can find the book anywhere, Amazon uh, or our publisher, NYU Press, or your local bookstore is a great place. Well, thank you both, and keep up the good work. Thank you so much thank for having us. Thank you so much us. for having us. Take care. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. Today. Hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all always. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a kind and check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. 
American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Now, in order for you to understand what I'm going to do next, I have to go way back and speak about my great-grandfather, whom we traced back to Marie Antoinette. As a matter of fact, my great-grandmother traced him back. There are a couple of guys... <laughs> He was partly responsible for the birth of my grandfather. He thought. <laughs> my grandfather was born in Denmark. He was Danish after his mother and Swedish after a friend of his father's. <laughs> he was one of the great inventors of his time. He invented the burglar alarm, which unfortunately was stolen from him. <laughs> He was a brilliant man. He was, among other things, a PhD. Just a f <laughs> So was his wife. However, besides being a brilliant f he also was a great chemist. He was the one who invented the cure for which there was no disease in the <laughs> Unfortunately, his wife later caught the cure and died. <laughs> he was a strange personality. He always experimented with something. Once he... Um, he crossed an Idaho potato with a sponge. <laughs> Imagine that silly idea. It tasted horrible. But it sure held a lot of gravy. I think his greatest invention was a soft drink, which he called Four Up. <laughs> but 
it wasn't successful at all. So he invented five up. But still it didn't click, you know. Then came six up. But still nobody liked it. So he gave up and died heartbroken a couple of weeks later. But little did he know how close he came. <laughs> Then I was born, and when that happened, my parents were, well, they were not poor, but they didn't have any money. <laughs> so I was actually born at home. And when my mother saw me, she was taken to the hospital. <laughs> One day, when I was four years old, my father came home. And he found me in the living room in front of a roaring fire, which made him very angry because we didn't have a fireplace. <laughs> there I sat, and here my father stood, burning up. He pointed at me, see, my father was left-handed. He always pointed this way. I was sitting on the other side. So my father said, Borger. He didn't know my first name. <laughs> See, in my father's family, we had a little trouble up here. In the head. My father was all right, but his two brothers, my male uncles. <laughs> you know, in Denmark, we always distinguish, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that we have three sexes over there. <laughs> Male, female, and convertible. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I was supposed to have been back to Denmark this summer. But I ain't going. Oh, once I made up my mind what I was going to be, and that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> what I meant to tell you before was, and this is not a joke, this is really a fact, that two weeks ago, we celebrated my uncle's 103rd birthday. Isn't that something? Thank you very much. 103rd birthday. Unfortunately, he wasn't present. <laughs> How could he be? He died when he was 29. <laughs> but what I meant to say was that he was the one who went crazy. And his mother used to say that he went crazy because he never got the woman he loved. And that's a lot of nonsense because his brother went just as crazy. <laughs> and he got her. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Some
be staying here inside It's too dangerous out in the world I'll see you on the other side When I'm in my quarantine In my little place too high My heart is aching and I'm missing you We're all in for a bumpy ride I'll see you on the other side It's not the same without you here I hold on to this phone so tight it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. Boy, did that go by fast and cover a lot of uh, different areas from transgender military service uh, in the book with honor and integrity, transgender troops in their own words, edited by Mel Emser Herbert and Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram. Um, before that, we talked about everything rocks, dinosaurs, human evolution, as included in Henry G's uh, book, A Very Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 billion years in 12 pithy chapters. And thanks to Henry for that uh, conversation from the UK. And then we talked with the founder and president of the Patriotic Millionaires, Erica Payne, about the book that she and Morris Pearl just wrote uh, called Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich even richer. And speaking of authors, uh, author W.H. Weiscarver, Bill Weiscarver, will be joining our roundtable for Armchair Politics tomorrow. It's Wednesday, which means it's Armchair Politics Day. But uh, they're smoking George Winters, tickling the ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room, but I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the show. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show we want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. 
most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.